Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Perhaps you're looking to buy your first home. Perhaps you're looking to refinance your first home. Perhaps you're looking at buying an investment property. Maybe you're looking at a parental guarantee. Maybe you just stumbled across this episode and you want to know more about mortgage brokers. Hey, I'm Glenn James. And on today's episode, we're joined by Rachel Kroon. She is the director at Sphere Home Loans. Rachel and her team have helped so many of you listeners all over Australia. And I just love doing these Q&A episodes because we're just having a chat about things that you've asked in the Facebook group. And Rachel and John will also give a bit of an update on what's happening out there in property land, particularly around using bridging finance in these interesting increased interest rate times and markets are cooling off. So it's a really good chat. I won't hold you up too much. Remember, if you haven't bought my book, Sort Your Money Out and Get Invested, or if you are new to the My Millennial World, that is our kind of Bible that's got all the 101 stuff, the evergreen stuff that you need to know in order to sort your money out, right? And then get invested. So you can find Sort Your Money Out and Get Invested wherever you buy your books. Let's get into it. John, welcome back. Pleasure. Um, Cool. Pleasure. When someone says welcome. (laughs) And Rachel, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Such a good friend of the show. Really good friend of the show. I like that, friend of the show. Now, Rach, you and your team, you've helped many of M3 listeners all around Australia. You live in mortgage land. Any conceptual updates or any even tips, tricks or traps that you've seen in this current few months since you were last on the show that you want to do a bit of a PSA about? You know, probably the big difference since the last time I've been on the show is that we are in a, I guess, a bit of a different environment. We're in a rising rate environment. So I guess my one tip would be if um, if you do have a pre-approval and you're out there looking at buying a home, just to double check that that pre-approval is still valid because some of the banks are, I guess, allowing that pre-approval to last for 90 days and some of the banks and the majority of the banks, every time there's a rate rise you've got to reassess that pre-approval. So I guess the big thing in this environment is to just check that your approvals are still valid. Is that because of the servicing fundamentally changes? Yeah, well, the assessment rate, which is the bank, the, the rate that the bank assesses your repayments at, so that might be 3 or 3.5% above the actual rate. When that goes up, then everything changes and they, they may need to reassess your loan. Interesting. So let's dig a bit deeper with this servicing stuff, Raj, because as interest rates rise, as you've mentioned, um, servicing starts to reduce. So how important is it to find a bank that is appealing for your servicing in terms of your income and your scenario? Because we know that banks assess you at different rates to each other. 
Can you expand on that? Well, they do. So you do need to, um, I guess, shop around to see what you can borrow, and that's changing more frequently than it has in the last decade. Um, but I guess it's some of the banks, the big policy is, or it's a big change between them, is that some are honouring that for a period of time and some aren't. So I guess if you were looking at buying a home right now, I personally would want to make sure that I was placed with a bank that gave me that period of time under the current approval to go and find a house. Yeah, so it's the assessment rate is being locked in, not the actual rate that you're going to be paying. That's right. Yeah, so that that's clear, isn't it? So we, we might lock in an assessment rate of 7%. Yep. that the banks are assessing you by. So you're locking that in for 90 days. You're not locking in the fact that you're paying 4%. No, that's completely different. So when you get a pre-approval with the bank and it says you're pre-approved for 90 days, you want to make sure that that is regardless of whether rates increase again. So are you saying there are some pre-approvals out there with different banks and lenders that that 90-day um, assessment rate isn't locked in. That's right. That's so some, a trap. It, it is a trap. So I just think I've had a, a lot of clients caught, um, not our personal clients, but people that have called and said, oh, we thought we were pre-approved, we're in a cooling off period and we're not pre-approved. Mm. So I just think it's a it's an issue that's out there that people really do need to check that their pre-approval is valid after the last rate rise. Okay, so let's go with the 7% assessment rate and putting you on the spot Which here a little savage. bit. Which is savage. That's a big rate. Isn't it? Well, it's, it's usually about 3% above, isn't it? It is, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Yeah. So if we're assessing at 7% and we don't lock that in or we go with a lender that's not locked, interest rates rise a quarter of a percent. We're now assessing you at 7.25%. What does that mean from a dollar point of view? And I know it's a, an example, but is it like 50 grand? Is it 100 grand? Like what, what might the variance be? Well, it might be a case of, hey, yesterday before the rates went up, you could afford a loan of 600000 rates went up a quarter of a percent last week, your pre-approval for 600000 is no longer valid with certain banks and you'll only be able to borrow 570 now. So even though your pre-approval would have come out two weeks ago, the rates have gone up in the meantime and then you need to actually go back to the bank and double mm, check that that's changer. still in place. Mm. Isn't that a game changer? It is. And, and, that's, and that's why we're here, people. It is. It's and, changed and, the game. And it's not just mortgage broker. We say it all the time. It's sophisticated, educated, savvy mortgage brokers that, that have been around more than 10 minutes that, that can walk you through this stuff. Mm. Well, I've just learned something. And Rach and I were chatting before we hit record that, you know, Rachel wouldn't want to be my mortgage broker because I'd be the biggest pain in the ass in the world. And I said, you're right, <laughs> I am. <laughs> but, you, don't, you don't take on pains in the asses, Rach, do you? Oh, gosh. But, uh, and, but I don't know this stuff because I usually just be like, yep, sort it out, sort it out. But I will say I haven't applied for a mortgage like many, many of you listening in this environment because we've only seen interest rates going down over the last 10 years. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, so. and, and depending on y your financial situation, it, it could be a case of I can purchase but now I can't sort of thing, whereas others, if they've got different buffers in their life, they might be able to get away with that. That's right. We've got a few people that are pre-approved at the moment that's pre-approvals are expiring that we're saying if you don't find something in the next few weeks, we have to reassess and that can be a really big thing. And that reassessment could tip them over to not getting finance. That's right. Yeah. Interesting thing that we brought up here because... If we don't purchase in the next three weeks, you, you can't actually lend money at all. Or maybe at another level. At another level, which might be 50 grand less than what it was when we first assessed you. So it's not an alarm bell to say, well, you shouldn't be buying property anyway. It's just 
that's what the bank's assessing you at at the time. Yeah, so now you may choose in a rising rate environment to want to be able to borrow less, but if you are pre-approved for a certain level, you want to know that's valid before you go shopping. Yeah, so I think the key there is, well, okay, you've been, been assessed at 400k, you can go and borrow 400,000. Let's make sure that if it's an investment property that your rental yield's going to be sufficient for your life. If it's an owner rock, then same thing applies. You're the one paying the mortgage, so let's make sure that you can handle that and more. That's right. And probably it has probably affected investors more so than first home buyers because if you hold a number of properties, when that assessment rate goes up, they're actually assessing your ability to make the repayment, not just of this current loan, but of all of the loans in your portfolio. So I would say for an investor, it's been a bigger change than anybody else. Yeah, cool. So before Glenn rolls back in again. Uh, Sorry, I was doing emails here. <laughs> What are you're you? the pros. You're the you're the property guy. You're the mortgage pro. So I don't need to be here. What are you? What are you seeing on the street? Like, are you seeing not as many people wanting to transact at the minute? Are you? Are you uh, have you got real estate agents that maybe refer to you that aren't referring as many? Like, are, is there a bit of fear out there on the street? There's a, probably a little bit of um, uncertainty for people. Maybe the first time buyers are wanting to wait until rates stop going up or just wanting to make sure that they can afford their repayments before they make a move. But from investors, I would probably say there's more investors wanting to buy, but maybe not being able to because mm. of these last rate rises. And, and when investors are, are wanting to buy and they've already got multiple properties in their portfolio, it compounds the effect, doesn't it? Because they're now assessing all of those rate increases across their three or four properties. It does, but then that might, might, might make it easier for these first home buyers to get in. Mm, yeah, which is awesome. And one thing that we saw and heard when we were doing the national tour, which we didn't hear that much of before, uh, before this climate of you know the property squeeze with COVID and interest rates rising was the debt to income ratios. And that's a new term that we're seeing come up now and people saying this stuff because they weren't told that before by their lender. So any motherhood statements on DTI with different banks or lenders? Yeah, look, banks have always had DTI in the background. You've always been able to see what the DTI is, but now more banks are making it a rule that you must have a certain DTI or having different policies if it's above a certain DTI. So if you're, you know, if, with a, one particular lender, if you are above this particular DTI, we need to get more information to support your application. Mm. So uh, a real-life example might be if, if you're on 100000 a year, and some banks' DTI level is is say seven, then that's a maximum of seven hundred thousand on the hundred k income that you can lend at. Yeah, well, there's a few different things that go into the calculator to work that out, but basically, yes, yeah. it just works yeah. out the percentage of debt to income. And and banks vary on that. So is it is it seven or eight that's around about the mark, and they see that as any higher than that is extreme? It really does vary, but they say under six percent, it's always everybody does under six percent. But then some have different rules as it gets higher up to eight. And just on that, if you have your income from your job. You might have um, a share investment account that gives you $10,000 of income a year and you've got rental properties that have an income. Do the banks and lenders look at all income that walks into your life or just your employment income? So they look at all income. So if you had a, um, an investment property, we put that rental income into their calculator. So when all the information has gone into the calculator, their calculator will produce a DTI as well as whether the loan services or not. Mm. And just another little technical question, 
We've put her on the spot. We have, and we apologise. Rach usually (laughs) likes to prepare, but I just think we need to get a bit nerdy sometimes. With the DTI and basically income that's used to assess debt, right? If I had an investment property that was worth $700,000, right, or $500,000, and I tell the lender, hey, it's getting this much rent per year, would they have a deemed rent that they use or will they take the dollar figure that you've told them verbatim? So, for example, weirdly, if you were getting double the rent that the market would usually provide, would they include that or would they say we only – does that make sense? Like, Yeah, so like would they house. Will they just deem – yep. The investment property, we're only using 5% income. Sometimes there's a shading in the background of the calculator. So we might have a lease in place and it has to be a lease. It can't be what we say. It has to either be from the property valuation or from a, a, a rental lease. So we might give the lease and it might have a particularly high rental, but in the background, the bank shades it to what they deem to be acceptable as a percentage. Right. Okay. So it, something's not rented at the moment and you get an appraisal from a real estate agent that says $400 a week, do they take the 400 or do they take what they assess that property to be? Less and less they're taking real estate agent appraisals and more relying on the valuation. So they would be more likely to take the property valuer and what they say it would rent for in the current market. Right. Which is weird. I don't know if I've ever seen accurate rental projections from a real estate agent or valuer. I could be wrong. Yeah, well, the... Usually one's up and the other's down. Yeah. <laughs> so Usually the real estate agent's going, oh, yeah, she'll get $800 a week, yeah. easy, and then it gets like five twenty. Like, yeah. Okay, thanks for that. So I had one recently where there was a house and a granny flat and they were both leased through a managing agent and I had the owner's statement, but the valuer noted that the granny flat wasn't council approved as a granny flat. So even though it was under a current lease, the bank wouldn't accept the rental income for the granny flat. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good one. So, look, lots going on there. Any other motherhood statements or things that you've seen out there in property or mortgage land with upgrading or downgrading homes, anything like that that's a PSA that people need to know? Yeah, probably with the rising market, which is something that is the first time it's happened in a long time, we've also had a shift in the prices of property. So, they may be declining or coming back a little bit. I would say more than ever it's important if you are looking at upsizing your home to really look at the possibility of maybe selling first and then buying. We have had a few clients get caught maybe buying and then going to sell and not selling for what they thought they may sell for. And that can be quite tricky. Mm, that's, a, that's a big one. So listeners may have heard of uh, bridging finance. Yeah. And there's actually a question there. So let's maybe just go to that question. Uh, where is it? Here we go. Angelini MB. How does a bridging loan work, i.e. to buy a new place while I wait for mine to sell? Mm. So, John, do you want to finish your comment? Yeah, so I was just going to say, I I personally would never do it. I would never try and buy something without having sold my asset first if I needed to sell that asset eventually, as in the next six months sort of thing. I just wouldn't take that risk because I would want more certainty in my life. And I've got a friend who's doing it at the moment. Shout out, you know who you are. Uh, he, it's he's, not me. He's bought a property, right? And he's got his other property that he's going to put on the market literally next week. So- Is that who we were talking about before? Correct. Oh, he's selling that? Yes. Do you want to buy it? 
Well, I would, yeah, yeah but yeah. I don't have that much Monet. So, yeah, so I, I'm sure it'll all work out okay, but you've got horror stories more so because you're in the trenches more than I am. But, um, yeah, the bridging loan, well, let, let's talk conceptually about how it can go wrong. Okay, I guess firstly let's explain what a bridging loan is. So a bridging loan is when the bank takes security over two properties, the one you have now and the one you're planning to purchase, and then they will take a, they will give you a loan for the whole thing. So the mortgage that you have now and then whatever you need to buy for the new property, they will assess two things, the peak debt, so at the top when you have the two properties, what you'll owe, and then an end debt. So the main difference between bridging finance and other finance is that they can actually enforce a sale of your house and maybe it might be six or 12 months. But the big benefit is you're only assessed at the end debt. So you only have to be able to afford the debt at the end. Now, bridging loans are traditionally designed for people downsizing. They're traditionally there for somebody who might have a house worth a million dollars and a tiny little mortgage. And at the end of the day, they're not going to have a mortgage. So there's a lot less risk in that than in somebody who is quite highly geared at the time that they're trying to do a bridging loan. So if somebody is maybe upsizing and doing a bridging loan, there's probably a lot more risks involved. Mm, absolutely there so is. So with the bridging loan, you are saying they take security over both properties. That would mean you'd really need to um, almost get a pre-approval with a ballpark area and then once you've agreed to purchase and sign the contract, then the bank step in before it's settled? How does that work? Yeah, so you would tend to get a pre-approval before you do a bridging loan and then the banks are taking those two securities. So it's when you find a property, they'll do a valuation on the property that you have and the property that you're purchasing. Right. So we've got a client at the moment that is approved for a bridging loan that has purchased a new home and I guess the downside for them is that since they've bought their new home, the property that they are selling now is probably selling for a little bit less. So they may not have chosen to buy that house had they known that their price, their property was going to sell for less. So I guess my advice to that client may have been at the start, it may be better to sell your house first and you can do that with an extended settlement period and then buy. Yeah. And I think... Because you could get caught out and be done a couple hundred grand. At least, yeah. You know, depending on what market you're in. I suppose my mind flicks back to why would someone do that? And and it's got to be emotion. It's got to be, well, I've found this thing that I love. I've got to have it. Now I'm going to buy it and think about the rest later. I feel that some people feel that there's a risk in selling their house and not finding the right house that they want to buy. But in my opinion, and the opinion that I'll give my clients, is there's much more risk in buying first and not selling. Totally. There's yeah. a lot less risk in selling your house and then maybe having to rent for a little while while you find yeah, a house. Yeah, we'll go and stay in a caravan park for six months. Rather mm. than actually having the potential of losing your deposit. Mm. Yeah, wow. Or in a bridging situation, I guess being forced to sell. And the rate on a bridging finance is much higher too, isn't it? Yeah, some banks do a lower a lower bridging rate, but generally it's the standard variable rate, which you'll see is a, yeah, a good percent higher than all the other rates. Mm. It can be quite costly to do a bridging loan. Yeah, I I think I'm with John on that. Like, just everyone chill out. You know, there's homes on every corner. Mm. So let's get your place sold first and then worry about, you know. I would agree with that completely. Because it's just not worth it, particularly when we've got rising interest rates at the moment. We've still got uh, property markets, you know, being wild and weird out of COVID and, 
a lot of like the, there's just such a big squeeze on many property markets in Australia and yeah. you just can't be dicking around with this stuff because it could cost you thousands and thousands of dollars. And I, and I think, again, I'm not on the ground writing loans, Rach, but I would assume that most bridging loans occur in the same market. They're upsizing in the same property market or they're downsizing into the same market. So it's relative anyway as in the market is the market. If you get a bargain here, you maybe take a haircut on the property you already own. Yeah, well, the market's changed so quickly now that people thought they were doing it in the same market, but it very quickly became a different market. Yeah, so I don't mean market as in the the condition of the market. I mean more the, the same suburb, oh, yes. so to speak. Yeah. 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 Um, Interesting. Yeah, there's a question here. Do you want to read that top one, John, from Aaron Joseph? Yes, yeah, so Aaron says, what happens if I've taken equity out of my PPOR, principal place of residence, to then purchase a boat yeah. and an investment Woo. property? Sounds like Glenn. And mm. then decide to sell that principal place of residence. All right, well, let's use a, an example and we'll just use round numbers. So... Yeah, is that all right, Rach? So if you have a house that's your own home and let's say you've got a – it's worth a million dollars and you've got a $500,000 mortgage. I was mortgage, going to use that exact example. And let's say you want to borrow $100,000 for a boat, which you can do. Is that is $100,000? Yeah. Is that Get boat money? Is that a boat grand, money? Yeah. <laughs> when I've you, spent that much on fixing one boat and correct. all that. But. And it's your equity to use. And as long as you can afford the loan, the bank's going to lend you that money. Mm. But when you sell your principal place of residence, that loan has to be accounted for because it is secured against your home. So you either pay out the boat loan at the time or find if you were to move to another home, you may be able to move that across with it. If it was an investment property that you were purchasing, so you might buy an investment property and rather than use that 100000 for a boat, you might choose to be sensible and use that 100000 for a deposit on an investment property. At the time you sell your own home you may have enough equity in the investment property to move that loan over. But if you don't, you will have to pay that loan down at the time. Yeah. And it's just, that's the simple encumbered, isn't it? Like, so for example, you go and buy a $20,000 car and you get financed for $20,000 in the insurance of the car, they'll ask you, is there finance on the property? And you're like, yes, I've got a bloody uh, car loan with Macquarie, for example. Now, what happens is, if you write off your car and there's finance on it, the insurance company aren't just writing you a check or sending you the $20,000 insurance benefit. They're, they're first writing to Macquarie and saying, hey, how much is left over? And they're like, oh, well, there's you know, the $18,000 loan outstanding. So they basically will then say, all right, Macquarie, there's your 18 grand, the loan's paid off and then give you the $2,000. It's not as if you get that 20 grand in your bank account and then say, well, I've still got a, a loan, but I want to buy a new lounge and a yeah. cheaper car and go on holidays. It doesn't work that way. No. And reading deeper into Aaron's question, the other issue someone has is they take the 200K of equity out of that million dollar property, 100 of it goes to an investment property, 100 of it goes to a boat. One is an income producing asset, the other's Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Gives you pleasure in a lifestyle sense. Um, so come tax time, can that 100 on the investment property be tax deductible? It's muddied waters with the boat. Well, you'd split out the loan, wouldn't you? Set up two you'd different You'd definitely loans. split it into two. If you're going to do the boat and the investment yes. property, we'd always have a separate loan or a split for anything that's to do with investment purposes. Correct. In an ideal world. But 
do people do that? Do they just grab the 200 and say, oh, okay, I'm going to peel off 100 for this property and there's a boat I've seen I like. Okay, now I've got 100 still sitting in there. I'm going to go and use that. Generally, when we sit down with a client to get their, their ideas of what they're going to do with the money, and we have to tell the bank what that money's for, if they knew that it was going to be for 100000 for a boat and 100000 for an investment property, we'd split it at the time. But I guess if they borrowed $100,000 for the boat, decided not to get it, and then used it for a deposit on an investment property, mm. then that's tax deductible, even though that wasn't the purpose of it at the start. Mm. But yeah, in an ideal world, you'd always have it split. Mm. And sometimes we're not in an ideal <laughs> world. Yeah. So it's just basic, you know, if you had to sell the principal place of residence and that property had fallen in value and there was still a, what, a $500,000 mortgage and then the 600, uh, the, extra 100,000, you know, 50 grand boat and 50 grand deposit on the investment property and the property sold for $600,000, well, you just walk away square. But if the property was sold for 500, you might owe the bank Well, the bank 000. wouldn't allow that property to sell for no. $500,000. Uh, so if you equity. go into negative equity, the bank can actually stop the sale. They won't allow the deeds of the house to be released until all money's owed. Is paid. Yeah, okay, that's cool. So then you have to go and get a personal loan to top the difference up. Oh, okay. So just in my example that probably wouldn't happen, but just go with me, I can list it on realestate.com with an agent, but when it push comes to shove, if someone's bought it for $500,000, the bank probably going to be like, yeah, no, nah, we're not letting that go for that. No. So I've seen cases where a client of mine has bought a home and everything looks great, they get to settlement and the bank of the vendor that they're buying the house for said, no way, we're not releasing these deeds. So that can be a hold up. Okay, so question, as we know, I'm in the market, you know, I've got a contract, always, <laughs> always looking, you know, um, and the, the contract at the moment for this house, it has, you know, the searches on it and it does, it does say that there's a mortgage against the property with the member's equity. So my conveyancer can't find out the amount outstanding to ME. They can only know that there's a lien against it, right? Yeah, and generally the conveyancer will ask you the amount that's owing. So you know that that's something that has to be fully addressed when you're deciding to take offers. No, no, the, no, the other end. The other end. Yeah. No. Yeah, so I, all I know is this property that I want to put a, an offer on that has a, a mortgage to members' equity. That's right. You don't know the I amount. Don't, that's right. Yeah. So there's so you, a bit of risk in yeah. everything. but You can ask the question. Um, to the agent, to the to then mm. their solicitor or conveyancer, and if you get a response, an honest one, great. Yeah, if not, but I mean that extreme scenario. That's a rare. That's happened once in twenty years yeah. of lending. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing you can do in that RP data report that I sent you was um, thanks, Johnny. <laughs> on a, <laughs> on a Sunday it, night. Su su or was it Saturday night? <laughs> I don't know when it, it was. It was Saturday it. night at seven pm. I text John. I'm like, hey, can you flick me this report for? Mm. Um, I love having a clarity call on standby, 25-8. Where was I going? Yeah, so you can see on that property when it last sold and what they paid for it. So you can have a bit of a dig at that, mm. but they might have used equity f to, to buy, buy something boat. else or <laughs> yes, to buy that boat. Anyway. Yeah, interesting. Mm. Um, all right, there's a question here from, I might go to Rachel because there's a question here for a mortgage broker. Sarah Ann asks, how far ahead of my fixed term expiring should I engage the services of a mortgage broker? I understand the loan will automatically roll onto the bank's variable rate, but also I don't want to be paying a less competitive rate for longer than I need. 
Also, how is a bank valuation organized to adjust the LVR? So lots going on there. Conceptually, maybe as another PSA, we need to talk about a cliff that might be happening with some people that did two and three year fixed loans a couple of years ago. Like there's going to be a big shock coming. So be ready, people. So that's all I'm saying as a PSA. How, how would you talk to Sarah's uh, comments there, Rach? Um, to answer that question, I would say about four weeks out. So if you've got a fixed rate coming up, I would be having a chat to a broker about four weeks out because if you did want to move banks, that's about how long it might take. Um, not to say that you may actually be able to renegotiate with your own bank, but you don't want to roll over to the standard variable. Um, so I would say about four weeks. Now, the question about how is a bank valuation organised, um, that's a really important part. So the va- whatever broker you talk to, they're going to be able to organise a valuation at no cost for you at your bank or at, or at another bank. And based on that valuation, you may be able to negotiate a better rate because when you bought that property, you may be sitting at, a, at say, an 80% LVR, but you might now be at a 60%, so you could get a more aggressive rate. So you would get those valuations done up front and you may even choose the bank based on that valuation. Mm. Yes, the best valuation wins a lot of the time, doesn't it? And just for reference, uh, we've got a valuer from Heron Todd White coming on the property podcast in a few weeks. Okay. Uh, I don't know when this episode's going up, so... So that's why a few weeks will be yeah. fine. Well, when they're listening to this, yes, it could already they? be up. Yeah. Okay, and just for reference, we've got a... Oh, no, a, you don't have to redo it. We're just saying subscribe to the My Millennial Property Podcast. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah, there we, we go. Rachel, so you, have you subscribed? I have. <laughs> yes, good. So you've got a valuer coming on. Correct. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Uh, they don't like when you try and tell them how to do their job when they're in your house. No, but being a guest on the, <laughs> on the show, we'll tell him no. Um, yeah, no, you're right, but hopefully we'll get some tips and tricks mm. from him. Yeah, but just on this, um, you know, we know over the last couple of years, like particularly in lockdown, we know that, for example, a lot of the bank's call centres, the big bank call centres, they may have had some big call centres in Philippines and then Philippines was locked down and people couldn't work from home and there were some banks and lenders where you'd send a file in and there'd be nothing for six weeks, right? Like literally horrendous. Has life started to get back to normal with turnaround times conceptually with a lot of banks and lenders that you're dealing with? With most of the lenders, we've returned to normal. Some are still being affected. Right. Um, Their time to discharge mortgages are taking a little bit longer. Um, So that's why I say allow four weeks. Um, You know, before COVID, that might have been three. Can you explain to the listeners what a discharge of mortgage would mean and when it takes place? So when you're moving from one lender to another, the new lender, when your loan's approved, will get you to sign a discharge for the old lender. So they handle the process of getting the deeds from that lender so they can they can take over that mortgage and they pay that old mortgage out. And so the new lender has to send a discharge to the old lender and the old lender may have a turnaround time of 21 working days to approve that. And, and generally, if I'm an old lender, I don't want to see a customer go, so I'm probably not going to have any sort of urgency applied to it. No, but they do have standard SLAs or turnaround times that they agree to, so would be able to tell you what that is for the particular lender that you're leaving at the time, and they do tend to stick to those, but some of them are, as I said, up to 21 days. So just – sorry, John, did you want to ask? No, I was just going to say off, off topic with fixed loans, how – 
if you said like one in 10 will be coming off fixed loans soon, like is, was it a common thing to fix when the rates were extremely low? Yeah, so going back to that mortgage cliff, that's that's going to come. We've got, uh, there's a lot of clients that are fixed in for say two years at 199 mm. and when they roll off onto the variable, that standard variable might be well into the fours. Yeah, um, big jump. Not to say that you can't get rates in the threes, but that is something we're going to need to negotiate as people come off their fixed rate loans. Yeah, so I hope they've been saving their coins in the meantime well it's just you know probably most people don't Mm. (laughs) but like we just have to be aware of you know what we're walked into and be aware of the climate that is ahead yeah and so just on that rach you know if this person i'll just pick a bank or lender st george they've got a, a fixed term with st george and it might be that if you put a new application with St. George, it could be a four-week turnaround or something weird like that. Would they prioritise existing refis or clients? So we wouldn't have that wait time if they stay with St. George. We'd be able to renegotiate that with St. George. Yeah, There's cool. no discharge going. So the reason I've allowed four weeks would be if you did choose to change lenders. Mm. But a lot of the time we'd leave people with their existing lender and just renegotiate the rate. Yeah, no, that's wow. awesome. The mortgage brokers do that. We do do that. Wow. Mm. Wild. Hey, we'll take a quick break and we'll be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, we're back. Jaya Rawlings, how much does salary packaging, the maximum amount affect borrowing capacity or serviceability when applying for a loan? So we'll just say that this person might be a nurse and they have a sixteen dollars or $18,000 salary packaged amount. How is that treated in bank land? 
there's two types of salary packaging. So there's the standard one that you just talked about, which is you're a nurse and you can have 15600 a year paid to you pre-tax. It's not part of your taxable income. Now that doesn't affect your borrowing. The bank can see that that income is still getting paid to you. And we generally just get a letter saying that you can opt in or out of that at any time. It's the same with the nurses sometimes get an entertainment card for $500 a month. We can add that back. State dependent, obviously. Yes. Um, but the type of salary packaging that does affect your borrowing capacities, anything that's attached to a loan. So a really common type of salary packaging is somebody might get a car and there might be a lease attached to that car, but all of the costs are coming out pre-tax and that might end up costing them $2,000 a month, but the, the, I guess the difference to their net income might be substantially less. Even though you're not paying that full $2,000 a month, because of the tax benefit, the bank takes the gross amount. So anything to do with a debt, it actually can negatively impact your borrowing capacity. So I'd always be um, checking before taking out some sort of car or anything to do with a loan through my salary before I borrowed. Yeah. So generally speaking, the banks are showing a level of common sense, you would say? I guess it's not a level of common sense when it comes to the car packaging mm. because they don't allow us to add back all of those costs of the car um, that they are paying pre-tax. So I think they can be a little bit harsh yeah, with the car salary packaging, but they definitely have common sense when it comes to the standard salary packaging like the nurses. Yeah, because it's otherwise income, right? Yes. So, And we may be going too in-depth here for the minute, but I'll go there. Help debt. When someone's got, say, 30 grand of help debt, and they want to go and buy an investment property, uh, where's that balance between paying some of it down using some of their cash versus going and buying that property and keeping the debt? So I did an appointment last week with somebody who only had 3000 left in help debt, but because they were on such a big income, it took, I think it was 20000 a year off their taxable income mm. paying that help debt. So it really affected their borrowing capacity. In this case, we just used $3,000 and paid yeah. out the help yeah. debt but it's really important to note that the help debt, it doesn't matter how much you owe on the help debt, it just matters how much you earn and if you have a help debt. So if you have a $100,000 help debt or if you have a $3,000 help debt, your income is what determines the repayment, not yeah. how much mm. debt you've got. Yeah, yeah. Important. and the percentage garnished off that that's in correct. terms of serviceability. Yeah. That's so, right. Yeah, no, that's that's. But good we always give people their borrowing capacity with and without their help debt mm. so they can, I guess, make some informed decisions about what to do there. Yeah, I usually say, like, you'd only really pay off your HEX or help debt if, one, uh, it was some housekeeping, you know, three, five grand left with the mortgage broker mm. or if you've got 100 grand saved and you've got 10 grand, like, yep, do some housekeeping, clean it up. Or two, all your other financial goals, short-term and medium-term, are met. Otherwise, just let it play out because... If you paid an extra, I'll, I'll give a really wild example because the, he, the hex and help debt dies with you. So little Johnny over here with your family, if you had a 50 grand hex or help debt and you just wanted to pay 50 grand to get rid of it and then you died the next day, that extra repayment of 50 grand, that doesn't go back to your family. Mm. May as well just put that 50 grand in super or an investment account or pay down the mortgage. So I'm kind of like... Hex or help debt, like motherhood statement, do what you want, but also just understand that because the debt dies with you, if yeah. it is a significant amount, you're really just playing the cards as they fall year on year 
unless there is some housekeeping yeah. before a mortgage. Yeah, so as in housekeeping, you're also saying, well, if I pay down this help debt, I can go and lend another hundred grand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. just little cleaning things up. Yeah. Uh, Shannon Dixon, do you want to read that one, Johnny? Shannon says, what are the steps and considerations involved when purchasing property number two using equity from property number one? If I intend to change the status of property number one to investment property and property number two to principal place of residence, please and thank you. To further complicate that question, how would it work if I intend to also knock down slash rebuild or renovate property number one? There is a lot going on there. Moving parts here, isn't it? Um, I think the main, I guess to break that down, the main thing is if you're borrowing against property number one to buy property number two, you would do a separate split or a separate loan against property number one for the deposit and the costs of property number two. Now, if you choose to move into property number two, property number two becomes the tax deductible debt as well as that deposit that you've taken out yes. against property number one. The fact that it's secured against property number one doesn't make it not tax deductible. Um, it's about what the purpose of the loan is, not yep. about what it's secured against. So Shannon says that they want to knock down and rebuild property number one, which is going to be turned into an investment property. So you'd say for tax purposes, this is an accountant's advice or whatever, but we'd say you'd want to do that once it's an investment property, right? Well, it depends on what on what works for them, but I would want their mortgage broker to sit down and do the scenarios of all those steps before they took step yes. one. And also, I guess a flag would be to check that you had enough equity to do that knockdown and rebuild after buying the investment property because you do lose yeah. a little bit of equity with a knockdown rebuild. So you just want to have that all stepped out for you in scenarios from the mortgage broker before you make a decision. Yeah, so you're really reverse engineering the process, say, well, in three years' time, this is what the end product's going to look like with the two properties. Now let's see what the next step is. Yeah, but really important that you mention to your broker all of these goals before yeah. you before they set it up for you so they can put that into your goals and I guess make sure it's flexible enough to be able to achieve them all. Yeah. And and it, in a situation like this, and we see it time and time again, is uh, the whole having the offset account and versus the redraw um, and how that can change things. That is absolutely correct. So if you were ever going to be living in a property that was maybe your owner occupied now, but may not be down the track, all of those extra payments that you can be making and should be making, you'll put that into an offset account rather than the redraw. Because when you move to another home, we can just pick that offset up mm. and move it. So it's offsetting the non-tax deductible debt when you go. Yeah. So people get a little bit worried when they have this money sitting in the offset account and they go to refi to another lender is that money going to be transferred across? Are they going to pay it down or take it with them? Like they, they want to go and take it out of there and put it in a savings account so they know that they've got it sitting there and, and then get the refi done. Is that a, a, a suitable... Well, no one touches your offset account. They only look at your redraw. So redraws looked very at very differently to offset when you're doing a refinance. So, and in this case, and I mean, some people do get worried about that offset and if they want to move it, great, but there's no reason to. Mm. Then no one's going to touch an offset account because that's a bank account that's just offsetting the interest. It's in no way yep. linked to the home loan for like refinance purposes. Yeah, excellent. Um, it, some people do get worried about having a large amount of offset sitting in an account for security reasons 
And that's where you might use a lender that has multiple offset accounts and you can have one of those accounts or your everyday account that you've got cards and you use for internet banking, but you can have another offset account with the bulk of your cash that isn't set up to any of those things. Yeah. I wouldn't want an account with huge amounts of money in it linked up to my Apple Pay and with a card no, attached to it. Dangerous. Um, so... Speaking of multiple offsets, I think they're a fantastic invention. I don't know why every bank doesn't do it. Uh, is the number of banks offering that increasing or? It hasn't been increasing, but there's a really good chunk of lenders that do offer multiple offset accounts. Yeah. Some do it better than others, but most banks now know that investors want multiple offset accounts generally. Yeah. And if you're listening to us for the first time, the great thing about multiple offset accounts, especially if you've got kids or just some some moving parts in your life is you can have your kids account you can have your bills and food account you can have a holiday account you can have your your uh, savings account you can have so many different accounts where you can have real visibility as opposed to having an Excel spreadsheet that says this money's here and there and otherwise. That's right. And I've got a lot of investor clients that have a separate offset account for each investment property they have. And it is offsetting their own home, not the investment property, but it's called that investment property. So the rent goes in, the repayment goes out, and they kind of can really keep track of that particular property. Yeah, it's gold. Do you want to read the next question, John? So Will Taylor says, if I have over 20% deposit and the rental yield is expected to cover the costs, can I still find a lender without a current income or minimal income? Can I ask, like, can we back engineer that question and say, if I was a student and I wanted to, you know, didn't have an income, I wanted to study something, I wanted to buy a property for a million dollars and I had a $500,000 deposit, like... Is it a rule of thumb that if there was a 50-50 LVR that it would service itself without having employment income? I would say it's not an LVR thing. Right. It's an income thing. Sure. So if somebody is, if somebody was a student and they wanted to buy an investment property and equity wasn't an issue, they had heaps of equity, um, we're just looking at income. You've still got to be able to show the bank that you can afford all of your living expenses as well as the gap in even though there might not be a real gap in what the rent is to the repayment, there is a back there is a gap in the background of the bank's calculator. So they may only take 60, 70 or 80% of the rental income. And they're also not assessing your repayments at interest only at 4%. They're looking at principal and interest over at 7.5%. Yes. They're also looking at your living expenses and you might be living at home with your parents and not paying rent, but the bank doesn't look at it that way. The bank still adds back a notional rent, even if you're not paying rent. So the living expenses for a single person, you still need to be able to cover with your income, as well as the gap of whatever the bank thinks is of the investment property, not just the real terms. Right. So Will's not happy about your response right here. I'm sorry, um, Will. So is there a rental yield where it does work? Like are you talking 9, 10, 11% gross yield? It's not yield? a rental yield, but overall situation, the calculator. So the best thing for Will to do is just to give um, a broker a call and do a basic servicing. Give them his pay slips and they might only be minimal income, his living situation and the proposed rent and then get them to work out a basic servicing for his situation. So will they... Just before Glenn chimes in, will they take a hundred percent of the rent or eighty percent? Or depending on the bank, it's between between sixty and eighty percent of the right. rental income that they'll actually use. Yeah, and I wanted to kind of say this because you know a lot of you, and if you haven't already, you will be in the future. You'll be heading to sortyourmoneyout.com, clicking get help, 
and I'll be referring you to a mortgage broker that's of quality, like the uh, stature of Rachel here. But I've seen this trend, and if I can go on a tangent for a minute, we've all heard the uh, big transfer of generational wealth that's happening in Australia over the next 20, 30 years. I've seen more and more inheritances come in for people in their 20s and people in their 30s uh, in the last year than ever before, right? So there could be a situation where someone emails me and say, hey, Glenn, I'm 24. I've just inherited uh, $500,000 from dad who passed away or dad who wanted to give us some money early or something. I'm still living at home with uh, mum because they separated years ago. I'm at uni. I've got $500,000. And that's why I asked the student thing, like, can they go to John? Hey, can I buy a quality investment property, put this $500,000 into it, borrow an extra $200,000 and have the rent service that $200,000 mortgage so they can be an investor with their inheritance and a mortgage on the investment property and still live at home and go to uni and not work. And as long as that worked on the bank's calculator, they could do that. But... Maybe they might have just a part-time job that they're working casually while they're at university and that might be enough to cover some of their living expenses and then the rental property covers itself. Absolutely, we can do that. Yeah, and that's what I want to get at. Like, because it is so circumstantial, it's good just to speak to a broker and say, hey, I've got this inheritance. My income isn't great at the moment for X, Y, Z. I want to put that money to work. I've done a clarity call with John and he reckons, oh, there's no point in your area or whatever buying a $400,000 investment property, the quality isn't there. For your goals for investing, you need to spend a little bit more. So it could be worth borrowing a little bit more or borrowing some money and buying an investment property. Yeah, and we're working on one at the moment where the only income other than the rental income is a um, like a scholarship income. Right. And that was enough to cover the gap. Um, So it doesn't necessarily have to be working income. There's other incomes that can come into play that might cover your living expenses. Yeah. So what we're saying to him is where there's a will, there's a way. Aid again. What questions should I ask a potential mortgage broker when I engage them? So what questions would I ask a potential mortgage broker? I would, I guess... I would really like to see people use a mortgage broker that's referred to them by somebody or that they've had some sort of um, interaction with. But if I was asking somebody that I knew nothing about um, a question, I would probably ask what they love to do. So I've got a broker in my in my team that loves doing parental guarantees. She's really good at them. So if somebody came to one um, to her and wanted a potential, I guess, parental guarantee, she'd be the perfect person for them. But some brokers don't like doing them. So I would probably ask a question about, you know, do you like working with investors or do you like working with first home buyers or do you do a lot of that? Um, Other questions that I might ask would be, is there a cost involved in your service? Um, We give out what's called a credit guide when we first engage somebody before we can give them any advice. And that has to cover any potential costs of us. Now, we personally don't charge an upfront or an or a cost if you stop using us, but that is a possibility for people to charge. So I'd want to know that just up front, Mm. not saying for or against, it's just not something to know before you engage a mortgage broker. Now, you're enumerated from the banks and lenders and one of the misconceptions out there is that, well, why would I go to a broker if I can just go direct to the bank? The rates are going to be the same, if not probably you might have access to some more competitive rates that aren't advertised in the window of the bank. 
Yeah, well, more than more than half of Australian mortgages at the moment are being done by a mortgage broker, mm. um, and that's because people want choice. Mm. Um, people want to know that you're giving the advice of all the banks, not just one particular product. But that cost misconception, and it is really common still that people think there's a cost, and if they're not paying it, they think that it may be built into the loan somewhere. But it's really important to know if you go and want you want to get a loan with, say, Westpac, for example. Um, if you go to the lender at Westpac branch, the bank's paying not only that lender's salary, but their manager's salary, the rent in their Westfield shopping centre, and then all the things all up the chain there, where if they're paying their broker channel, which is called, it's called their third party channel, in a lot of the banks, that's their cheaper acquisition channel because they're only paying for settled loans. So the bank's paying the broker rather than their own Mm. hard costs of branches and staff. Yeah. It's absolutely no-brainer to use a mortgage broker. And I know one of the questions here was was that, and I think we're answering it now. Um, like, you, it's customer service for me. Like, I can go and talk to my mortgage broker and have a conversation about my situation and they know that they're looking across 20, 25 lenders, getting the best situation for me and I can pick up the phone and, and know that they're educated. Whereas I talk to a bank and I'm not necessarily getting an educated response. I'm getting a product that they're working for. They're not going to recommend me up the road. Yeah. Um, but before they... we um, – well, I think, you know, before we get on to like this other question – I just want to kind of bookend the questions I should ask a potential mortgage broker. One, who do you work with best? Like, would you rather yeah. do downsizers who are in their 50s or first home buyers or investors? So get someone who does. And you've got brokers in your team, Rage, who specialize in all different corners. So that's right. I've got a broker in my team that just loves to do investment lending and some of my investor clients I refer on to him yep. because he loves it so much and he's doing it every day. There's just different types of brokers that love different types of things. So I'd want to deal with somebody who loves doing whatever I'm doing. Yeah. So that's number one. The second one, um, I think it's important to ask generally, what's your process? How do you work? What's your process? Just And if you are a mortgage broker listening and you are a, a professional services person listening, what you need to do, and this I'm not talking about I'm talking, Glennie, talking to small business owners here. You need to set realistic expectations with your customers. So much is won and lost on the expectations and making them realistic. So say, look, it's going to be four weeks. Probably we'll push as hard as we can. But if you don't hear from us in two weeks, we haven't dropped the ball. We haven't, this is just life, but we will keep you updated. So set realistic expectations, but flicking back to ask the mortgage broker, ask them about the process, ask them about how does the fee model work? If we do this work and I don't go ahead, are you sending me a bill? Ask if they've got any uh, recent Google reviews that I can look at. I don't know, like just ask the questions. Yeah, and I would say 90% of the clients that we see have been referred to us from somewhere. Someone's sending them to us. Yeah. They don't tend to just Google us and, and come in. Um, so I, I still think that a mortgage broker is a really important part of your team when you're buying a property. And I'd still like to see someone that has been recommended to you or check out their Google reviews. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, and just anything on Google reviews, like look for trends. I'm just on the weekend, I booked a hotel. Uh, I need a, a hotel in Marina del Rey in LA before I get my flight home at the end of September, right? And I'm, I'm just like, I'll oh, go in, look at the reviews. And human nature, you see one review that's one star and we ignore the 3,000 positive reviews. So what you need to do 
any type of review service online, you have to look for trends. If there's one person who's got their being their bond because they had a bad day and they didn't bloody do this, yeah. that happens. We've all been there. But look for trends, okay? So that's all I would say. And anyone on my panel of financial advisors or mortgage brokers, we send out surveys and that I look for trends. If there's a trend of the ball getting dropped every second day, guess what? I'm not sending business that way. Life does happen and we get that. So just look for trends. Look, so with reviews, there's, oh, there are always going to be bad reviews. Look at the podcast reviews for My Millennial Money. Every second person says I suck. And it's probably a trend. No, but um, <laughs> Yeah, but I think the... The customer service is a big one. Mm. Like when, when people come to me and I've done a clarity call with them and I say, look, I've got a mortgage broker but they just don't get back to me or I haven't heard from them and, and uh, may be part of them saying, well, are you initiating contact or are you expecting something that's not there? So I think the expectations of um, customer service are key one. Now, secondly, um, why should you go to a mortgage broker and not a bank directly? So I think... We've answered the question that there are so many variables, whether you've got a deposit and you don't have an income, whether you need a bridging loan, whether I want to buy a second property, whether I've got salary packaging, uh, a fixed term coming off, um, equity out of a PPOR. There are so many variables to your personal situation. It's rolling the dice if you just walk into a branch or go to a random website and do some comparisons because if I go to www.bank.com.au, the stuff on the website, it's going to tell me headline rates and some borrowing criteria, but all the stuff in the weeds that a broker would ask the person, it's not going to say on the bank.com.au website that, hey, we're really good if you've got a high LVR or we suck. If like It's ridiculous. Like You need a broker. However, the other side of this big coin, if you've got your quote unquote forever home and you've got 50% LVR and you've got solid government incomes and you like doing stuff online and investigating, sure, it's probably just do it yourself, knock yourself out. It's going to be easy because there's nothing complex about that. I would still advocate that you might want to use a mortgage broker, but like, and I'm not doing the whole mortgage broker industry a disservice, but there are personality types that want to do crap themselves and amen, sister, go and do it yourself. But it's going to be harder if you've got a high LVR, you need LMI, you've got part-time income, you've got parental guarantees, all this complexity that most of our audience has, you need a mortgage broker. I'm Glenn James. That's my sermon on the mount. You've been real. See you later. End of episode. I'd like to counter that. I saw a client only a few weeks ago that had a private banker with a major bank and they were convinced they were on the best rates. They were referred to me by one of their friends and we actually got them a better rate at that same bank. So we've left them there, but with a better rate than their private banker had had them on. So why did the private, is it because there's more meat in it for the private banker to make more of a bonus or? I think it's more that the bank needed to see the counter offer from another bank. They needed me to take them a bank, an offer from another bank to say, this is what I can get. I'm going to take this client there mm. unless you match it. And Loyalty. they did. Yeah. And, and that's or amazing. But I would like to counter your counter if that's okay. <laughs> you can. A lot of the time we see stuff and we focus on it, but it's the outlier. Like it's the absolute outlier. You got to look at the on balance call And there will be an outlier that is a government employee. We talked about members' equity before. 
you know, they've got these cheap rates online and on the TV that are advertised. They only work if you've got a low LVR and you've got a good income. But you add any of that other stuff to the mix and you don't have a private bank who's trying to screw you anyway. Like I, w- I would just say let's not major on the outliers for our hanging out so, hat. Yeah, but stuff. to answer that question generally of why yeah. you should go to a mortgage broker and not a bank directly, I would answer that by saying we're legally obliged to look at your best interest. We're covered by something that's called best interest duty. So we look across all the banks and lenders and we have to give you advice based on the knowledge of all of those products where if you're working for the bank directly, you're not bound by that. You only have to give advice on your product. Now, I saw a My Millennial Money client late last year who had already got a pre-approval. She heard one of the podcasts and got in touch. And she was an optometrist and she was about to pay $8,000 in lender's mortgage insurance Mm. because her bank didn't know or didn't offer that there's another bank that she didn't know about that didn't charge mortgage insurance at 90% for an optometrist. Because they're not covered by best interest duty, they didn't have to tell her or do the research. We have to do the research. But but then again, that's also the the issue. As soon as you step into needing LMI, you got to go to a broker. You just got to. You do. But also... If you're like, no, I want to do the research myself online and not use a broker because, like, do that. Who cares? Like, yeah, and I think I'm, I'm not here to convince anyone to do anything against their will. No, I'm just saying, on balance, you'll likely get a more appropriate and favorable outcome seeing a quality broker than wanting to do stuff yourself. I think the person who wrote this, though, may may mm. think that there's a cost involved. So when you say, yeah, sure. why would I do that? They think there's a cost. Once people know that there's absolutely no cost, yeah. maybe that takes away the question. Totally. And I think to round this out, if you want to go and do your research online and, and not use a mortgage broker, then great. That's mm. fantastic. But majority, when they're comparing mortgage broker to bank, they're just going to their lender that they might have used for the last 20 years and that's all. Mm. And like, like shopping for a car, Glenn will like go to Lexus and nowhere else because he likes the feel and drive of, of a Lexus. So he's not going to look at Ford. Whereas everyone else in mortgage territory, we couldn't care less if it doesn't drive well, right? The fact is it, it's the interest rate, it's the servicing, it's the valuation, it's a whole range of things that an expert needs to mm. look over. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm just wanting to say like anyone who's half serious about getting a mortgage I would absolutely tell my own parents, my own family to use a mortgage broker and I've done that and I'm pro-mortgage broker myself. But if you are that outlier and you want to do it yourself, you're allowed to but you might not get the most appropriate outcome. But you might also do better. And I just think chatting to a mortgage broker, even if you're not going to use them, Mm. at least chat to them before you use your bank. At least have that conversation for yourself. Mm. Um. Nick Hill, what happens to your accounts when you sell? Now, I'm assuming that Nick is meaning the transactional account or the offset account that's attached to his mortgage. Right. So when you sell a house, you've got your mortgage here and you may have an offset attached to it. The mortgage obviously gets paid out automatically as you sell your home, but the offset account doesn't. You can still use that account as normal. It's a normal transaction account with the bank and it will just sit there until you tell it to do something else. Mm. Yeah, so that's a that's a good one. Jane Elwood said, do we have to pay you even if you can't find a cheaper deal for refinancing? So uh, there could be some 
misconceptions in this uh, question. There might not be. Uh, so, for example, let's assume, I think, because to answer these, we have to make some assumptions to answer the question. So, do we have to pay you even if you can't find a deal for refinancing? So, just to clarify, I think this, and this is the misconception where yes. people think that you pay a mortgage broker. Now, I don't have an FPOS terminal. You're in my office now. There is no FPOS terminal here. No one has our bank account details. No client has ever paid us a cent ever. So, we don't get paid from the client. The bank pays us when we choose a bank for you. So, no, you don't pay even if you can't find a cheaper deal. But there are cases where we don't find a cheaper deal. There are cases where people come to me and say, should I refinance? And I say, absolutely not. You're sitting there on a great rate. You've got everything you want. You're really happy. And that conversation doesn't cost you anything. Mm. Yeah. But so, I think yep. um, in, in sport, we call it unrewarded running. So you, you'll do two hours of work, can't find a deal and they move on to someone else or, or do it themselves, whatever. But I think what you mentioned earlier in the show here is that there are mortgage brokers that do charge. That's right. So I would say for us, no. But if there was a broker that did have a fee, I would assume that that would, fee would not be charged if they couldn't find you a cheaper deal. But that's something that you'd ask them yeah, before engaging their services. That's another question, isn't it? Look, we need to wrap up. Uh, we've answered a lot of questions, had some good food for thought. If you do want to speak to a quality broker, you can reach out to Sphere Home Loans direct on their website. Tell them I sent you. Um, we make sure that uh, you're well looked after. Or you can go to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and I can connect you formally that way. But Rach, do you have any closing thoughts, comments after all that stuff that we've discussed? Look, I would always just say to have a chat to a broker about your personal situation. There's a lot of different scenarios here. Of, you know, people are asking those questions, but it costs you nothing to pick up the phone, give a broker a call, and have a 15 minute chat. You can book in on our website for a 15 minute chat. And just book it in and ask any of those questions and it won't cost you anything. At least you'll know the answers to your particular circumstances. Mm. Do you have any much. final comments or thoughts? Look, I think you may have been listening to this episode thinking, well, um, the, the servicing's dropped, the interest rates have risen, there's, there's a bit of doom and gloom out there for borrowing. But from a property perspective, we're getting some unbelievable deals out there at the moment because a lot of people are sitting on the fence and there's a, a lot of our investors are taking some massive action um, because there aren't as many out there and, and people want to sell. So, yeah, I just think if, if, it's, uh, if it's the right time for you, then uh, lock and load. Mm. Yeah, and just check if you can borrow um, yeah. because a lot of I've said a couple of things here about it might be harder to borrow, but there's also been some policies changing that makes it easier to borrow. Yeah. So you might be a self-employed person that's gone to the bank six months ago and got told you couldn't borrow. Well, some of the banks have changed their policies and letting us add back things like JobKeeper and mm. all those things yeah. over COVID. So that's changed. So there's, there's also policies that have changed to make borrowing easier. And I will say my closing thoughts, like if you've already got a mortgage broker, like, and particularly, like, if you've recently had a loan with them or whatnot, go back to them. Like, don't 100%. come to me asking to be referred to a mortgage broker if you've already got one who looked after you. I'm just, we're not after business or any weird stuff like that. Like, just as a business owner, like, go back to the people who put in the time mm. with you. Unless you've got a profound reason to change, you wouldn't if you were happy with your broker. Yeah, that's, that's all I would say is go back to your own broker. Um, if you haven't heard from them for some time, it probably might be a bigger issue that you know, they're too worried about getting new clients and not looking after their own. 
Uh, like my broker reached out to me the other day, hey, we're coming up 12-month anniversary. Do you want to have a chat? And we've looked at this. Everything's fine here. So, you know, it's – I'm just – I don't know. I'm probably cooked because I've had a big day but um, probably came out in the COVID rant. Got a bit wild there, didn't it? Yeah, went off on a bit of a tangent there but, but brought it back. But did you vibe me? Did you vibe me with the outlier stuff? Uh, to a certain degree. I think Rach won the debate, to be honest. Well, it wasn't really a debate. No, it no, but just... there was a few counters and whatever mm. else. But, mm. yeah, no, it was, a, it was a good yarn today. Mm. Well, we might leave it there. Do you want to have an after party or have you got to go? No, I'm good for an after party. Do you want, do you want to have an after party, Rach? <laughs> Let's go. All right, we'll I've be got, back. I've got to quickly go to the toilet. Back. All right. Um, we'll have an after party because I want to tell these guys what I did the other day that was pretty wild. Um... Okay, see you guys. Bye. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Recording, oh. so it would have heard the end of that story. So who cares? We didn't mention her name. <laughs> so it's the after party. So you don't, you don't want headphones? I'm not wearing headphones. Yeah. Doesn't matter if this stops. But I wanted to share with you guys. Yeah. So basically, Rach was just saying a friend of hers told her the other day. Repeat the story. So I was walking with a friend of mine who said, "Did you hear that Glenn James had sold his podcast?" To Afterpay, and I hadn't seen the post that you did back so, at April Fool's. Back in April Fool's, so I didn't know the dates, so I didn't know the backstory, and um, yeah, I just I said, "There's no way that Glenn would have sold to Afterpay." So I looked at the date of the post and realised the money, joke. Money talks. <laughs> well, it does John? And would I take money from Afterpay? Totally. Absolutely, nah, I wouldn't. <laughs> I actually wouldn't. Actually, Afterpay money, they closed that. Did you see that? Did they? Do you know what that was? They, no. They had a, like, for 10 minutes, they had this, they called it Afterpay money, and it was a, um, I think it was a badged Westpac account or something like that. So he set up an Afterpay money account. Could, I don't know if it was Westpac, whatever. Um, and you could effectively, um, if you bought a $200 pair of shoes within the next week or something, you could re-borrow that money or something like that. I forget the actual details, but they've just emailed everyone last week and said, um, They're out. we're stopping Afterpay money. Mm. So sucked in. Uh. Afterpay sucked in. But what I wanted to do, we haven't done Afterpay, uh, an Afterpay, <laughs> an Afterparty, sponsored by Afterpay, um, for a while. I wanted to share some funny things with you. Have you, you've got WhatsApp. 
John? I love it. Yeah. Do you have WhatsApp? I do. Yeah. Okay. So you know how you get the spam things and people just random numbers. They're like, hello, I got your number at a party. I didn't very, know. Very rare. I've never had that happen. Really? No. Very rare. So anyway, I got someone, there's a couple of people that were like, they spammed me and the whole thing was like, um, anyway, what happened was, because I rarely use Afterpay, uh, <laughs> WhatsApp, rarely use WhatsApp. Anyway, someone messaged me the other day like, your photo on WhatsApp is a random guy and your profile's named Michael. What the hell's happened? And I'm like, oh, I forgot about that. So what I did... <laughs> Change your own identity. I was catfishing the catfisher. <laughs> <laughs> so this person was like... Um, Hi, how are you? Like, I think I got your number at a party the other day and it was like a Singaporean phone number or something. I'm like, oh, I'll play along. So I like Googled random guy photo and then changed the name to Michael. And I'm like, oh, yeah, how are you? Like just chatting. I'm like, oh, what are you into? And just so weird. Like they're into like Forex trading and property investing. So weird, right? They're telling me all about this stuff. And (laughs) it was a chick and she, she... quote unquote chick that lived in Melbourne. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, my name's Michael. I live in Perth, like really keeping it anonymous away from anyway, just chatting. And it went for a couple of days and <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm in Melbourne next week for work. Do you want to meet up? And there was always excuses why they couldn't meet yeah, up yeah. Uh, because I was just waiting for them to be like, oh, sign up to my Forex mm, thing. Like, yeah, yeah. cause they're just scammers. Lead them on. But yeah, I, I basically catfished the catfisher. Wow. And I did it to two people. And then I got told by someone, you're a sicko and you need to stop. I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> Could you be bothered with that stuff, right? <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> He's got clearly too much time on his It hands. was fun. Yeah. No, it would be. And it was just like, oh, it was just wild. It got wild. Mm. Like, you know, this girl, she was like, oh, I'm from like somewhere else and my family back home have this. And like, I need money. Yeah, it was just wild, but I just I had a bit of fun and it, I got a bit too invested in it. <laughs> in wow. Michael from Perth or Adelaide. Michael, Michael needs a new hobby. <laughs> yeah, so. I'd be shutting that down. <laughs> yeah, but it was fun. Yeah. Um, oh, as long as you got enjoyment out of it. Yeah. So anything news that you need to tell people, John? We've just come off the back. Of, uh, we're recording this at the end of August. Just come off the back of the yes. national tour. And I think Friday morning I woke up and like brick wall like I think my body just said you've had enough now and you just need to stop today really and uh, yeah it was interesting but uh, yeah it was a good tour wasn't it it was yeah really enjoying just yeah yeah and different cities eyeballing different stories like yeah it still blows your mind that um, yeah the stories that people tell you Mm. oh yeah it's, it's wild Absolutely wild. I had lots of fun meeting everyone out there. That was good. Um, And you just, yeah, I I think people are like, oh, it's so good. Like you've helped us so much. But we didn't do anything. We just encouraged you and gave you some encouragement and direction, right? Yeah. Like it's it's pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that was a bit of fun. So you're off to the States now to do your thing? Yeah, so when this episode goes up, I'll probably be in the States. Let's have a look. Mm. 
Are you traveling soon, Rach, anyway? I'm going to the States next month too. Oh, wow. where are you going? Vegas. Oh, Vegas, what are you doing baby. There? Just just going for a holiday. Oh. A couple of friends or it's actually my boyfriend's fiftieth. Wow. Oh. We're in that sort of era now, we aren't are. we? It's <laughs> fiftieth. I've got uh, a fiftieth in October as well. You oldie. Yeah, wow. So Fun you man. so he's a little bit your senior. Yeah, he's a lot my senior. Like okay. twenty years. Okay. <laughs> um Who's your daddy? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so well, um, Rachel's boyfriend. Oh, uh, yeah, that's fun. Vegas. Where are you gonna, staying? We're going to stay at Caesar's Palace, and then we're stopping off at um, Maui on the way back. Wow. Yeah, good. So I'm, I'm very excited. What's uh, What's he into? Enduro racing. He's actually into enduro racing. Is he? Oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. Actually, we've got this scheduled to go up on the 9th of, or the 8th of the 9th. Excellent. So, yeah, I'll be in America. Mm. I'll be at FinCon then. And we're doing heaps of episodes at FinCon. Yeah, right. So, the new boy. Big five oh, eh? Big five oh. Love that. That's great. Going to Vegas must be serious. Yeah. Going to get married, Mirad, in oh, Vegas? My dad would kill me if I got married in Vegas. Yeah. Really? Yeah. He needs to be there? Yep. Mm, would mm. you get married in Vegas, John? Again? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> ho- hopefully I'm not um, getting married for a second time, but yeah. uh, no, probably not. No, I've, I've never actually been to Vegas. Have you, Rach? I have not, no. I, I have. Uh, stayed in Paris at the Eiffel Tower there. Oh, yeah. Really cool. Um because you, you don't drink and bet, so... I don't drink, John, no. <laughs> <laughs> Might have a flutter. <laughs> but, oh, you do have a flutter. Oh, $20. Like, yeah. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm addicted to gambling. Yeah, um, yeah okay. But, yeah, not really, no. You just enjoy the, the energy of the place? Oh, I mean, you, you just kind of go there. Um, so Vegas, it's a weird thing, like... I don't think you'd want to be there. How long are you going We're there? We're only doing four days in okay. Vegas and then a few weeks in Maui. Yeah, so I, I, was, I was about to say I might offend Rachel if she's spending two <laughs> weeks in Vegas, but you really don't want to spend more than a couple of days anyway because, you know, one, it's just a boring little city outside mm. of – at night it's nice because it lights up. Yeah, yeah. Um, you go to shows, which, you know, you usually do at night when shopping during the days, heaps of outlets, or you might get the chopper over to the Grand Canyon. We're doing the chopper, no, doing, doing the kayaking that? through the yeah. canyon. So, yeah, I mean, that's, cool. that's awesome. But He's Vegas, got some supercar thing that he wants to do. Oh, there. really? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, nice. it's just, it's so weird. Like, I, um, it's so funny. Like, I was there with a mate years ago and, you know, we woke up in the morning and then he, um, he was like, oh, I'm just having a shower. I'm like, oh, well, you take forever in the shower. So, Let's go for a walk downstairs and it's like 8 a.m., right? I'm like, I'm in a casino. We went downstairs, yeah. 8 a.m. And I'm like, oh. Have a flutter. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, oh, I'll just have a, a try here. And um, I went up and he's like, oh. He goes, and I think he just got to the shower and the door closed. I'm like, he goes, oh, where were you? I'm like, oh, I was just downstairs. I just lost $100 while you were in the shower. But um, that's about the extent of my um, gambling, mm. you know, Vegas. Yeah, well, it's um, people rave about it for, for buck shows at least, but yours, yours will have a different focus, Rach. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it is, it's actually not my scene. Mm. Like, it's just trashy. Like, you'll have a good time because you're doing all the... <laughs> it's trashy, you'll have a good time. <laughs> yeah. No, but like... You'll fit right in. Yeah, you, 
you'll have a good time because you've got the <laughs> canyoning stuff and the all the other stuff, and you go to shows and all that. Yeah. Um, but I don't really go to strip bars. Or really, I don't. I, I don't do all that stuff. Yeah, I'm over that now. Yeah. No, I've never been to a strip club. Have you? Don't answer that. Um, <laughs> Why would I? Um, but no, I, a lot of fun. Like we actually hired a convertible and drove from LA to Vegas. Oh, wow. And it was in February, so winter. And it was freezing driving through the desert. And we're like, no, we've paid for this convertible. So the whole way it was like roof down, yeah. side windows up, hoodie on, <laughs> cruising through the desert in our convertible. You just, you just think of the hangover when you think Vegas. You do. I think no, we'll I need two really, weeks in Maui to recover. Yeah, I never really got No, the that movie. movie. Yeah. That, yes, that yeah. what you're saying? <laughs> oh, yes. Okay, we're on the same page. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah. no, Vegas, it's it's fun. You've got to go there. Like you go to like um, the Venice in one of the casinos. They've got like a, a, a reenactment of Venice. So the one with the gondola? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so they've got the river there and um, what else? The Eiffel Tower, it's half the size of the original one. They didn't let Vegas council or the, the council didn't let the casino build a full-size Eiffel Tower because it was too close to the airport. Mm. They were going to build a full-size Eiffel Tower. Right. Wow. But, um, yeah, I mean, mm. realistically, you, we went to like a magician show, a hypnotist show. Like, we, I think we're only there three nights. Um, but, yeah, mainly did a lot of shopping and, um, yeah, it was just... I'm pretty excited about going to Hell's Kitchen. The Gordon oh, yeah. Ramsay restaurant? Yeah, Ramsay. Because ah, yeah. Hell's Kitchen's a suburb in Manhattan. I mean well. the Hell's Kitchen restaurant, restaurant. that right. Gordon Ramsay, though. Ah, that guy. Celebrity chef. Gordo. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's oh, cool. Be fun. So when are you going? Mid-September. Mm. Yeah. Well, oh. are we in the States at the same time? Excellent. How wild's that? So, yeah, I'm going to Florida and then we're taking the team after the FinCon conference to Nashville oh. to do a um, bit of a debrief a couple of nights. Nice. And then um, where on then I'm going to Columbus, Ohio to see friends and just chill there for a couple of weeks. Hmm. When do you come back? I think the end of the month. I'm there, I think, four weeks. Um, but because I'm, I'm taking the team up, on, I land in LA on the Friday morning and my friend from New Zealand, Sim, she's another money podcaster and you met Sim at mm. the Sydney event. She's flying up Thursday and we're going to like get a hotel and obviously not together, everyone back off. <laughs> um, and then my team, I'm like, oh, so we, we, we actually booked a big Airbnb in Beverly Hills nice. for my team and Sim for the, from Friday well, Sim will get there first on Thursday and then we'll stay in Beverly Hills in the big mansion that we're renting on the BV and then leave to go to FinCon on the Tuesday. Awesome. So, and I've hired a big Ford Expedition, so oh, like yeah. the big FBI black cars oh, so right. we can just cruise around and I yeah. bought a uh, – here's a travel tip, everyone. If you're hiring a car overseas, um, I bought from JB Hi-Fi a window mount that I can just – Stick on the screen, mm. take it in my bag, put my phone on there for a GPS. And That's then good. I've got my own window mount phone holder. Beautiful. Yeah, look, look at that. Thought of everything. Yeah. 
So. Well, that'd be good. That'd be a, a nice month, won't it? Mm. Come back recharged or exhausted? Yeah, I think it'll be recharged. Um, I'll still be working out there because we're still editing this next book. Mm, so That's not far away. Yeah, all that's kind of happening. Um, so, yeah. I didn't know about the next book. There's a next book coming. Mm. We haven't talked about it publicly other than the live events. Um, so, you might be able to see it online if you Google it. Glenn James and look at the author profiles on Amazon or um, Booktopia, but um, we're going to wait because it's out on the 1st of February or the start of February, so we'll do our hard launch for all that mm. in January. Nice. Very so, good. Yeah. All, all right. right. Right on. Good chat. Yeah, good hustle. Hope you're not too embarrassed. Not at all. About your holiday. Being trashy in Vegas. <laughs> Being trashy in Vegas. <laughs> Um, can I use your office here for another you can. half hour? Cool. All right. Okay, bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.